Most of human history, the intangible, the unseen, the metaphysical, has reigned supreme. Faith-based conceptions were dominant in terms of how we set up our societies, divvied up power and resources, determined how best to spend our time, our lives, and figured out what it all means, the purpose of it all, if there is indeed a purpose. These were all considered to be the wheelhouse of soothsayers, shamans, prophets, and priests. It's impossible to know just how uniformly ancient humans adhered to this template, that of deciding that there was an unseen force, a hand or an eye, watching and guiding the events on earth from somewhere else, some other plane of existence or from up in the clouds, from under the waves. Ancient humans, by definition, lived before writing, and thus we only have untranslatable, roughly interpretable artifacts to guide us in our attempts to understand how things worked back then. And so we look at cave paintings of animals and we wonder, are these religious symbols? Were they attempting to spiritually coerce the animals into plentitude? Were they trying to establish some kind of power over this natural force that they didn't fully understand, but knew that they needed to survive? Or were they maybe creating the equivalent of cave-painted textbooks, showing their young or folks from other families, other tribes, how best to round up the local elk, the giant sloth, the mammoth, and the tiger, so they could be most efficiently killed and eaten, turned into clothing and weapons and keepsakes that are maybe spiritual totems, but which are maybe non-religious pieces of artwork. We do know, though, that one of the earliest examples of recorded secularism, that is, making judgments about the world that are materialist in nature, based on tangible reality rather than an inferred spiritual reality, attempting to measure physical laws and make observations so that predictions can be tested. One of the earliest examples of writing about that way of seeing the world emerged in what is today India within a philosophical school called Charvaka. This school of thought is interesting in part because much of what we know about it comes to us through comparison-based writings in other texts produced by religious schools of thought especially writings from around 600 BCE, a period of substantial spiritual turmoil in that region, as Buddhism and Jainism were just getting off the ground, and as a consequence, the existing Hindu religion was going through a reformation, partly to address issues that people had with the faith, and partly as a sort of rebranding effort to ensure Hinduism could compete in the religious marketplace with these new, fancy, would-be usurpers a somewhat tangential opponent in the writings that emerged as part of that reformation was Travaka, and it was used as a point of contrast because of its claim that doubt was good and that observation and skepticism are also good things, rather than being signs of a wayward soul. Charvaka is today considered to be a facet of Indian philosophy and an atheistic branch of the larger Hindu tradition. But it's a branch that rejects supernaturalism and ritualism in favor of empiricism, and which puts a focus on experienced reality over implied or inferred religious truths. They believed, in essence, that the world was knowable, and that we could learn more about whatever we liked, and that claims to truth or goodness 
derived from things like religious text or the statements of a supposedly holy person, were not sufficient to help us achieve that understanding. Charvaka is thought to have originally emerged as a formalized way of thinking sometime before 1500 BCE, but again we only really have written evidence of it from around 600 BCE due to the aforementioned religious conflict in the area. A few hundred years after that conflict, Zeno of Sidium, a Hellenistic philosopher from Phoenicia, so he was an ancient Greek philosopher, founded the School of Stoicism, a branch of philosophy that was inspired by the ideas espoused by the Cynics, a group that believed the purpose of life is to live virtuously in alignment with nature, which to them meant achieving happiness through physical and mental training, rejecting not just wealth, power, sex, and fame, but also the desire for these things, and living simple lives without any possessions. This group inspired Zeno of Sidium's Stoicism, which was similarly focused on logic and establishing a rational basis for moral correctness, but it also expounded upon these ideas in many ways. The fear of pain and discomfort, for instance, were seen as hindrances to the Stoics, worth being expunged from one's life. It's also important, according to this philosophy, to be not just free from traditional religious and spiritual baggage and free of certain desires, like the desire for pleasure or wealth, but to also have control over these things. To perceive wealth and privilege, for instance, as an opportunity to flex one's virtue muscles and improve the world according to the laws of nature, which each Stoic is also responsible for figuring out for themselves. Another idea espoused by this group is that there are different types of pleasure, like hedonic pleasure and eudaimonic pleasure, the first of which is easy to access and can enslave us, the latter of which is difficult to achieve but more wholesome and healthy, and also, importantly, that we have control over how we live, and thus, we have control over the pleasures that we experience or do not experience. And some of those pleasures will be purely predicated on the satisfaction that one gains by living ethically, rather than, for instance, the pleasure one might take in eating delicious food or having sex. And perhaps most importantly, this entire pursuit is performed outside the auspices of holy men or women, of some central group telling us what is right and wrong, of anything supernatural. This and similar philosophies were not necessarily anti-religious, they just did not consider religion and all that comes with it to be relevant to their worldview and pursuits. Many more recent ways of thinking and doing things, from the European Renaissance to the Age of Enlightenment to the concept of a secular state, a government in which power flows from the people, not from the church or other religious establishments, have been predicated on these and many other early examples of secular thought. And though some, like Stoicism, are more well-known than others, like Charvaka, it's assumed that there was a fair bit of cross-pollination between these ways of thinking, even if they didn't stem from the same cultural milieu, and even if they didn't have uniform beliefs about what this non-metaphysical way of thinking meant, in terms of how we should behave as individuals and how we should build our societies. What I'd like to talk about today is secularism, and the increased and increasing commonality of secular philosophies in a time of seeming religious resurgence around the world. You 
are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Stuff, a New Zealand-based news site, and it's entitled Census 2018, New Zealand is More Secular Than Ever Before. This piece focuses on a shift that's taken place in New Zealand over the last few decades, which has seen the number of people who consider themselves non-religious double from a quarter of the country's population to nearly half of the country's population. The 2018 New Zealand census, the numbers for which were published in late September 2019, show that 49% of New Zealanders consider themselves non-religious, which is up from 38.5% in 2013, and up from about a quarter of the population in the year 2000. This number is particularly striking because it represents the first time non-religious people outnumber Christians in New Zealand. The 2018 census has self-identified Christians, which still make up the majority of religious people in the country, coming in at 38%, which is a decrease from the 46% that registered as Christians in the 2013 census. Some other interesting tidbits from this piece, non-Christian religions are on the rise in the country, but that's apparently because of immigration, not because of new entrants into these faiths. Hindus make up 2.6% of the population compared to 2.1% in 2013. Muslims account for 1.3% of the population, and Sikhs are at less than 1%. There are a little over 40,000 self-identified Sikhs living in New Zealand. Interestingly, the Church of Scientology opened up a $16 million base of operations in Auckland, the largest city in New Zealand, in 2017. But that investment seems to have only netted them three new followers. There were 318 Scientologists in the country in 2013, and in 2018, there were 321. Also interesting, for a different reason, is that research by Pew and other organizations have found that as New Zealand's secularism grows, so too does their tolerance for people of all faiths. There have been a few instances of religiously motivated violence in the past decade, and these have almost entirely been perpetrated by far-right pseudo-Christian organizations attacking Muslims or those that they believe to be Muslims. And those same surveys have found that a mere 2% of New Zealanders would be uncomfortable having a neighbor who practices a different religion from theirs, or who practice a religion in general if they themselves are non-religious. This is in huge contrast to data collected in 58 countries for the World Values Survey, which indicate, across those 58 countries, an average of 20% of people say that they would prefer not to have a neighbor of a differing faith. In other words, the shift away from having a majority religion has not increased anti-religious sentiment in New Zealand. If anything, it is a trend that is running parallel to increased religious tolerance. And that, honestly, is not terribly surprising. Secularism, after all, is about separating church and state. It's not about saying religion is horrible or that we should oppress people of faith. It's saying that religion is one thing, the running of society is another. And if we separate the two, both will probably work better because they're four different things, different aspects of our lives. One of the consequences of this way of thinking is that no single religion takes precedent over any of the others. And thus, you do not have a bunch of Christians deciding how all the Muslims, Sikhs, and atheists should live their lives. You instead make determinations about how society operates separate from any one religion, and such a system historically tends to be more equitable for all involved, religious and non-religious. 
none of which is to say that any country, any government, has figured out the perfect way to run things. New Zealand still has a lot of Christianity-favoring infrastructure in place, and the secular stuff has a lot of flaws too, by a lot of different standards. All the same, pushes towards secularism within the state tends to be associated with certain things, while pushes toward religiosity within government tends to be associated with other things. And these trends are fairly stark when you look at the most and least religious countries in the world in terms of population data and in terms of how the government is set up. From a Gallup poll conducted in 2009, which asked respondents whether religion is important in their daily lives, here are the top 10 countries in terms of religion being least important to their populations. Estonia, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Czech Republic, Japan, Hong Kong, United Kingdom, Finland, and Vietnam. So those are the countries in which the most people said religion is least important to them compared to the number of people who said it was important. And to give a range of what that means here, in Estonia, 78% of respondents said that religion was unimportant to their daily lives, while 16% said it was. In Vietnam, the 10th on the list, 69% of people said religion was unimportant to their daily lives, while 30% said it was. There are a few outliers on this list, but the majority of these countries are relatively or extremely wealthy have very high standards of living compared to other countries, have famously good education systems, and have secular governments. Governments that have a rule of law and system of governance disconnected from any one religious structure. A few of them, like Czech Republic, are relatively less wealthy than, say, Sweden and Norway. But because of historical context, the Czech people are thought to be one of the most ardently atheistic populations in the world, third after only China and Japan, with 30% of their population claiming that label, because of their geopolitical position during the Reformation area conflicts, and because of their shift during the communist era that followed. But these outliers are still doing quite well for the regions in which they are located, especially when it comes to things like access to education and equal rights for groups who are otherwise denied rights within other less secular countries of a similar scale and of similar traditions. On the opposite end of the scale, using that same data, which is not perfect by any means, but it is one of the better ways to judge this sort of thing, lacking any truly objective data about the importance of religion within society. On the opposite end, the top 10 countries based on the number of respondents saying that religion plays an important role in their daily lives. We have Somalia, Niger, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, Yemen, Sri Lanka, Malawi, Indonesia, Mauritania, and Djibouti. Again, there are some outliers here, but the dominant trend seems to be that these are countries of comparably lower wealth, lower standards of living, for all except the wealthiest and most influential few, at least, and the highest integration of religion with government. Now, importantly, this data does not say, and I am not saying, that religion and social problems go together. Correlation is not causation, and there is not any data that I'm aware of that supports that assertion. I'm not sure how you would even measure that kind of thing, to be honest. It's so subjective that it would be difficult to quantify in the first place. What does seem to be supported by this data, though, is the idea that entangling religion of any kind with governance might be correlated with an overall decrease in quality of living and economic health, and an increase in what you might call faith-related crimes of prejudice. 
though the definition for that term is fuzzy and would be interpreted differently in different places, and the crimes that would fall under that header would vary greatly, from things like rape and murder and attempted genocide on one end of the spectrum, to things like defacing a religious symbol or being mean to a neighbor of a different faith on the other. There have been attempts to simplify this conversation, though, to figure out what might be causing what. Does religiosity in a culture inherently have certain economic and social outcomes? Is it only when a religion makes its way into formal governmental power? Or can it have effects even when the country is technically secular but popularly religious? Is there a difference between a country being broadly religious and a country being religious for just one specific religion? And does religiosity, or the purported economic reverberations of religiosity, come first? Or said another way, does having a predominantly religious population lead to these outcomes that most people would consider to be negative? Or is it the other way around, that having a lower quality of living, lower than average economic success and wealth and things of that nature, lead to a more religious population? In most cases, to assess where the governments of the world stand and then backtrack from there, using a fairly concrete means of measurement, research bodies like Gallup, but also the United Nations, bodies within individual governments, and organizations like Pew, will often consider a country's GDP, their gross domestic product, which is the market value of the total finished output of their economies, generally measured over the course of a year. Now, a few quick caveats about this approach. First, GDP is a great way to measure a few very specific things, and a terrible way to measure everything else. So although this provides us with a consistent yardstick to use, it is also an inherently flawed yardstick of dubious value for everything except a particular type of production, and thus a particular type of economic activity. Second, these measurements are often gathered by a variety of different sources, and those sources' findings are then averaged. This means that the yardsticks that we are using for GDP and for other measurements, like figuring out who belongs to what religious group, is wobblier than the numbers themselves might imply. For example, do you measure the number of Christians in a region based on self-reported data, professionally gathered census data, or some other method? Do you ask people if they are Christians, or do you ask if they are practicing Christians? Do you ask, as they did for the Gallup survey, if religion is important to their lives, or do you just ask if they're religious? Different questions can result in different answers from the same person, even if those questions might at first seem to get at the same thing. I personally know a great many people who consider themselves to be religious, but who do not perform any religious rituals, or think about that religion when making decisions about how to behave, who they are, or how the world works. It's possible to behave in a secular manner while still perceiving oneself to be religious, in other words. And most of the data that I've seen on this matter is less than ideal for distinguishing between someone who lives their religion and someone for whom it's mostly just a label or tradition. And third, even with gobs of data, in many cases the results for this type of research will still be open to interpretation. Very seldom do we see absolute indications of one narrative that is uncontested by any other data point. Everything may seem to point one way for one viewer of the data, but another way for another viewer. And that is just how these sorts of things go. So the data is useful, but it's not gospel, nor is it meant to be. Now that said, when you make a chart showing the religiosity of a country on one axis and the GDP of that country on the other, 
And this works if you use per capita income at purchasing power parity instead of GDP as well, which is another way of gauging a country's economic health. But either way, the pattern on that chart is fairly clear. More religiosity tends to be associated with lower incomes and lower GDP. Lower religiosity tends to line up with higher incomes and higher GDP. This does not result in a perfect line, but it is a fairly clear pattern that you cannot miss if you look at it. There are outliers, as I mentioned before, that you will also notice if you look at this kind of chart, and I will link to at least one such chart in the show notes. But if you take a look at this type of chart, you will see that the aforementioned Czech Republic has a lower-than-average religiosity based on its income, while the United States, which I'll talk about in a moment, has a surprisingly high religiosity for a country so wealthy. And both of those countries are distinct outliers from the broader, very clear pattern. Now, there are several theories that have been posited to explain this data correlation, a few of which come to what I would consider to be perhaps unintuitive but believable conclusions. One such theory was espoused by Lisa Keister, a professor of sociology at Duke University, who wrote a book called Faith and Money, How Religion Contributes to Wealth and Poverty. From that book, quote, there are two broad reasons that religion and wealth are related. First, religion affects wealth indirectly through its very strong effect on important processes such as educational attainment, marriage, decisions to have kids, how many kids people have, and women's decisions to work or stay home with their kids. Religion affects these behaviors and processes, and they, in turn, affect household income, expenses, and the amount of money left over to save. Understanding these processes alone accounts for a large portion of the religion-wealth association. Second, religion can also affect wealth directly by influencing intergenerational processes, social relations, and orientations toward work and money. Intergenerational processes, the transfer of both religious ideas and wealth from parents to children, and social relations, contacts made through religious groups who can provide information, capital, and other resources, are certainly important. One of the most fascinating explanations is the direct effect religion can have on orientations toward work and money. Many of the important decisions about family, work, and savings have roots in their religious beliefs. For example, in some conservative religious groups, including conservative and black Protestant denominations, becoming a minister, working for a social service agency, or becoming a career missionary are considered good jobs. A calling into one of these careers can be important for religious reasons, but these jobs don't necessarily require high levels of education, don't typically pay well, and won't make it easy to save and accumulate wealth. End quote. In other words, it's not religion itself that is directly associated with negative economic outcomes, but the cultural mores, trends, rituals, traditions, and expectations that often come with being part of a particular religious community. Even if all those things, those attributes, have nothing to do with the religion or its teachings directly. Another theory on the matter is one that attempts to take into account one glaring exception to the broader trend, the United States. The theory here is that measurable outcomes, especially economic ones, but also in terms of quality of life and things of that nature, are substantially more dependent on the relative secularism of the government than it is on the relative secularism of the people. Thus, it is possible to have a highly religious population, one that is full of true believers, rather than people who merely wear the label, 
But if you have a state that is decoupled from that religion on a formal level, you will still probably benefit from the positive outcomes of having a secular state. And the United States is quite religious. Religiosity in the country has been decreasing since the 1970s, with a bump to that trend in the 1990s. But it was still at 95% religious in 1972, 86% religious in the year 2000, and 77% religious as of 2018. There's been a downward trend for that stat over the past decade or so, with about 1% dropping from those who are religiously affiliated in some way every single year since 2004. But still, the United States stands out as by far the most religious wealthy country in the world. And according to this theory, one of the key reasons this has not led to the negative ramifications that you might expect by looking at worldwide data on the subject is that the United States, despite having a pretty wild and kooky government in many ways, is also still quite secular. There are a great many people who would like it to be otherwise, but it's generally disconnected from the influence of any one group and is made up of the cobbled together wants and needs of a great many groups, at least compared to other governments around the world. I think it's possible to rationally view all of this data and all of these theories from multiple angles. It's possible to think that these are clean-seeming assertions that are nonetheless pulling meaning out of nothing, and that are intentionally or unintentionally supporting a particular narrative about religion and wealth, religion and civilization, that is actually an attempt to paint people of faith as being backwards, and people who lack faith as being logical and forward-thinking. Though I do not think that this is the case personally, there are plenty of good cause-and-effect-style rationales for these differences that do not lead one to the conclusion that religious folks are any more or less good or smart or civilized compared to anybody else. It's possible to support just about any narrative with data if you're good at presenting it in a particular way. So it is worth keeping such possibilities in mind, even if, and maybe especially if, that data superficially seems to support your existing worldview. It's also possible to consider how we might benefit from the upsides of religion and other faith-based systems, while whittling away some of the downsides, and I mean downsides on the personal level and on the societal level. It may be smart, for instance, to undertake a religious inventory to figure out which components of one's faith are vital, are important to what one hopes to achieve, truly believes in, and which pieces, in contrast, are unnecessary holdovers from a previous age, Bronze Age beliefs that no longer hold water, prejudices from another time that seemed to make sense centuries or decades ago, but which no longer do through the contemporary lens and the assumed applications of certain ideals that we may be able to apply in different ways to achieve better outcomes, reinterpretations of the same thing that allow that thing to be more beneficial for everybody involved. Finally, I think it might be prudent to look at this data and consider that some of what we previously expected from our religions, from our faith-based communities, are instead quite often being derived from other communities, from other groups of people, from other sources. Now this would seem, looking at the data on youth and how the younger you go, the less religious people are, this would seem to be what's already happening. Even the traditional methods of passing on religion from generation to generation are not sticking anymore. Now that we all have so much casual exposure to so many different ideas and people from around the world. So accepting this concept that we may be able to get a lot of the good stuff that religion offers us from other sources 
would really just be a matter of formalizing that process, deciding to separate the potentially harmful or outdated or questionable portions of what we've been taught to make more room for the good stuff. Stuff that's good for us, good for those around us, and good for the communities and societies of which we are a part, including communities of faith that we might be a part of. There's no one best optimal way to live one's life or to run a society, not as far as we know, anyway. But questioning existing structures in this way, and figuring out what works and what does not from the different methods that we've tried, should help us develop increasingly beneficial, positive options as we continue to grow and learn as a species. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called We the Corporations by author Adam Winkler. This is a book that I picked up because I wanted to know a bit more about things like Citizens United, which is a fairly recent development within the United States that essentially opened up the world of political contributions to corporations so that they could spend their money as kind of a free speech issue. But what I didn't realize is that the path that led to that point actually started way, way earlier in American history. And there are some very colorful characters involved. There's some very interesting segues and misdirection. In some cases, the ambition to get human rights for corporations was entangled in interesting ways with the struggle to get human rights for humans that were traditionally oppressed within the United States. But overall, the stories are quite fascinating. The characters are quite interesting. And the path that led us to where we are today, I think, is a valuable path to walk if you want to understand how we got to where we are, why politics in the United States are the way that they are, and how this type of influence, this power that corporations have, has helped to shape modern politics around the world. So if that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of We the Corporations by Adam Winkler. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And I've got a couple of new projects that I will be rolling out in the very near future. You can find those and subscribe if you're interested in learning more about them as I roll out more information at askcolin.com and brainlenses.com. I'm looking forward to getting those out the door, and I'd love for you to be a part of their launch. You can also reach out and say howdy on social media. I am at Colin is my name on all of them except for Facebook, where I'm just Colin Wright. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.